Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. And today we have on Evan Blaker, who runs uh, netnethunter.com. Evan, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, so so tell us a little bit for the listeners on who you are, what you do. Uh, you know, I've kind of seen you around the internet a little bit. Um, I get your emails all the time. Um, <laughs> so I assume you invest in net nets, but tell us a little bit more. Who who are you? Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm really just a small investor on a journey. I've I found net nets in in 2010, and I fell in love with the strategy. You know, like most people, I thought it was dead thought it wasn't really an option for small investors anymore, but uh, found out I was wrong and, and started buying net nets. And it's been about, uh, you know, 10 years uh, since I started and learned, uh, learned a lot. Um, I'm doing all of this from Seoul, South Korea. That's where I live with uh, my wife and, and young child. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a full-time investor. I run the site, run NetNet Hunter. I I like helping small investors uh, with their investing. Just help them to develop as NetNet investors, deep value investors, that sort of thing. So, and tell tell us a little bit about the site. Like, what had you decide you wanted to develop the site? Like, what? How did that come about? So, NetNet Hunter is really a tool for my own investing. Uh, that's how I started it. Back in 2010, there was a lot of American net nets, and <clears throat> primarily I was investing in uh, U.S.-based uh, net nets. I also invested in some Canadian net nets, but you know, after a few years of doing that, you know, two three years of doing that, about 2013, I found it really tough to find good American net nets. There were still net nets out there, but they were mostly junk stuff that I wouldn't want to invest in their, you know, reverse Chinese mergers and, and all the rest of it. Well, let me ask you something. I, yeah. So when you say it's mostly junk, aren't net nets typically junk in the first place? Isn't that how they get to net nets? So how do you distinguish between a junky net, like junk that's investable as yeah. a part of a basket versus junk that you think isn't even worth investing in as a net net? Like how do you, you know, you know how do you right? Because I've even seen data that that unprofitable net nets make more yeah. money than profitable net nets. Like um, Tobias Carlyle has talked about that. So how do you, how yeah. do you distinguish that? You know, as opposed to just going with the algorithm and not worrying about that some of these look terrifying. Well, I mean, there's junk, right? Yeah. And then there's junk, and so you got to <laughs> distinguish between the two junk. But how? How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well. You know what I like to do is I like to look at you know the university uh, the universe of net nets and then I look for additional factors that are kind of tells that the company will probably do better going forward and is not a you know outright bankruptcy candidate. Okay. Uh, most most net nets work out um, at least somewhat. Uh, some work out much better than the others, and then if you look for specific things like. Uh, share buybacks, insider buys, uh, catalysts, those type of factors will really tell you has it like working out or not. And so thereby you earn better returns. Now, back in you know, 2012, 2013, I was looking at American net nets and 
most of them had uh, they were declining in net current asset value rapidly. So you have your value just you know um, completely eroding, and a lot of them were uh, that that were kind of holding together were reverse Chinese mergers that look like frauds. A lot so of them were scams, right? Yeah, a lot mm. of the reverse, you know, Chinese uh, mergers or scams. So that's not something that I want to be, you know, a part of. I didn't want to buy into that. Uh, a lot of the good quality net nets that I was looking at at the time or looking to buy had very solid uh, value in terms of net current asset value. And, you know, they had all these other factors. And that's really what I wanted to invest in. Right. Huh. Yeah. So that would be, you know. That, I mean, they're still junk. They're still sure. they're businesses that are suffering major problems, and they're you know not earning a profit, and they've seen their revenue fall off a cliff. Um, but still, these are the ones that tend to work out. Inter- interesting. So yeah. now, where do you find you know when you design this website? And maybe this is proprietary information, but how did you design a website? Um, how do you screen for these things? You know, do you need a Bloomberg terminal? Like, how did you get? Where do you get all this data from? How do you sort through it? What is your process? I, you know, I assume, yeah. you know, what you can do is, re- is you can replicate. It's just do you want to take the time to spend hours and hours and hours? I imagine it takes quite a while for you to sort through all this stuff. Is that correct? That's definitely the case, and I don't do it personally. I hired an analyst to okay. do it, but um, all the data comes from Reuters. Uh, ultimately, and so I don't know anything uh, about programming. So, are, are you buying the data and then somehow putting it into a computer program, or how, how does that no, work? We, we do it by hand. We do it the old-fashioned way. So, we'll, we we start with a bulk list of net nets. Okay. And, and do you and buy, do you we, buy that, or do you actually just get it on the website? How does that work? Uh, we we bought that. Okay. So yeah. So um, the. The output is ultimately provided by Reuters, and then we have our and what, analysts. And what would that is it? So let's say I'm trying to replicate your process, right? Yeah. And and I think the determination is I'm going to see how much work this takes and decide I don't want to replicate this process, or at least a lot of yeah. people wouldn't. Um, so if I needed, if I didn't want to use your service, I want to do all this myself and put hours and hours of yeah. legwork. First of all, what's the cost for me to buy this data from Reuters? What? How does that start? Um, well, if you wanted to, I I believe there's uh, I think the a Reuters package for a professional investor goes for about uh, 500 a month, I believe. Okay. You can get a terminal. So fairly expensive. It's not something that the small investor can you know, do at home in their den. It's, it's a big expense. And then once you have the list of net nets, you know, to work through do that. You, do you order a list of net nets or do you, can you, do you screen? How do, what do you do? Do they just give you a net net list? No, that's that's part of the the magic that is NetNet Hunter. So I'm gonna, okay. have, to, gonna have to decline to answer that. Got it. But okay. uh, yeah, that would be the proprietary meets there. Respectable. Um, but we start. Nice try. Nice yeah, try. <laughs> we start with the with the list, and then we get our analyst to work through that. So he's literally combing through the stocks by hand, um, and he 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 has a, a list of filters that he uses, and then okay. you know if. He rapidly excludes uh, companies if they don't meet basic criteria. For example, um, a company would have to be trading above a two cent, um, you know, stock price, or it would have to have uh, volume that's greater than a thousand U.S. Uh, per uh, per day. I guess, yeah, I think it's per day, uh, just so it's viable, right? Right. Yeah. And, and 
and then we we exclude other um, candidates, like we exclude stocks that are mostly um, trading in, or sorry, mostly have most of their business in in China for um, you know for the obvious reasons. Sure. And then um, what we arrive at after about. 30 hours of work is uh, a group of net nets that are high quality candidates for further research. So we arrive at about 45 of them. So already, say. even if I want to do this myself and figured out yeah. your proprietary information, I'm still spending more money than it would cost me not to do any of this and just buy your membership. Yeah. I mean, if you got the free, if you got the free list, let's just assume that you have a list of net nets. Sure. You, the list is, you know, 500 to 750, you know, and to comb through that list and to arrive at um, a group of stocks that are about 45 highly qualified uh, for further research, you're still looking at, you know, a minimum of, say, 20 hours. So right. to save, you know, was it $42 a month, I guess, is what it works out to for an internet hunter. Right. You're working for about two bucks an hour. Uh, <laughs> Not not exactly attractive. So. Right, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So so you compile this list and yeah. then members of the site, do they do they get the raw list? Do you do write ups? Like how does that work? So members get, you know, the bulk list of netnets, um, again, between, you know, five hundred and seven hundred and fifty, uh, sometimes up to a thousand. And then we have are short lists and they get access to that. These are updated on a monthly basis. Okay. Uh, on top of that, we get or they get an analysis uh, that we produce every single month, and they get um, they get inner circle emails which are designed to try and help them put together a portfolio and, and pick the right stocks. They get access to a learning resource, and, but probably the biggest learning resources are forum. So we have quite a bit of discussion on our forum between me and, and new members and uh, people who have been net net investors for, you know, over a decade and other really highly uh, skilled investors. So that's where a lot of the, a lot of the values created there just okay. in the. Interesting. And then for your own personal portfolio, I assume you're also investing in a lot of these same net nets. Heavily. Yeah. So okay. net net hunter is primarily a tool for my own, investing that's why i created it you know i couldn't find good quality net nets in the u.s in 2012 2013 so i decided i'd have to look internationally but huh. i don't you know i didn't want to put out the monthly cost of getting the data for myself so i figured that we can probably share the cost if i put together a site and sell membership and that's what i did and i'm basically just continuing to do what i did when i you know started All right cool um yeah. So then how how has that been going? You've been in this a while now. Yeah, I mean it's it's been going extraordinarily well. Um I've learned a lot over the past 10 years about net nets and deep value. Um it's it's been quite a good journey. Uh my returns right now are about 22% compounded, which is pretty good but a little bit disappointing um compared to where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh generally I want to be above 25%. If you look at um, all the academic studies that have come out about net nets, they typically show returns uh, above twenty five percent. So I want to be at least in there. So why? Uh, where do you think the that the difference comes from? Yeah, what what what's what's behind that? You think? Um, it's just a timing of returns. You know, net nets. The strategy is pretty lumpy. So 
you know, you, you have the, the number on the package, you know, you're going shopping in the supermarket, looking at strategies and, you know, this package says 25%. So you think, well, that's great. But if you flip the package around and you read, you know, the fine print and all the ingredients, you see that you don't earn those 25% each and every year. They, the, the returns are quite lumpy. So you can go, um, say, you know, three years, maybe four years with very lackluster returns. But then, uh, you know, in the fourth and fifth year, uh, the stocks can really take off. What you tend to find is that the majority of the returns of the strategy will come in a small handful of of years, and you just have to be invested for that to capture those. Yeah. Uh, and then you're buying a basket of these stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Uh, generally, what I advise um, is that investors who are just starting out start with say you know, 20, 24 stocks so they can make, um, you know, a couple purchases a month or something. And then as their knowledge of net investing grows, you can pair that back and look for additional factors in order to help you do that. Um, so what I tend to do is I tend to look at a lot of factors uh, that go into my picks. And I tend to hold r- roughly uh, 10 stocks in my portfolio. So, you know, unlike... Um, hunting down Buffett's moats, what we're trying to do is we're trying to capture a bit of a statistical uh, anomaly here where these type of stocks end up having you know great returns as a group. So if you're just starting out, the obvious thing to do would be to invest in more of these companies because they have a better chance of replicating those returns. Right. But as you learn a lot more about deep value investing and what makes um, a better net more so you can start trimming that back um you know there's there comes a point where um having a smaller number of net nets in your portfolio you kind of step away from leveraging those statistical returns and you're banking more on your ability to pick um net net companies uh you know the better companies so um yes so right now i'm i'm back to about as concentrated as i feel comfortable getting okay um yeah but uh generally speaking that's that's how it works so question uh two questions actually what have you learned you know is what what are sort of the typical spaces you find people learn as they go from a beginner net net investor to someone more experienced you know is it is it more qualitative is it more quantitative is it a mix of both like what can you Maybe give me some examples of maybe something you bought in a more concentrated position that that maybe other people or maybe even you wouldn't have known to do ten years ago. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, looking at your first question, uh, what do new investors learn? They learn so much. To be honest with you, they the first thing that I think uh, net investors really have to learn is they have to learn how the strategy works. A lot of investors come into it and they think that. Um, you know, they think that they'll just buy a couple, two, three stocks and see how it works, you know, over a course of a year. Nothing could be worse because yeah. you don't really have a good idea of what makes for a good pick. Um, again, this is a statistical strategy. So we're, we're relying on uh, the outcome of a lot of stocks, not two or three. And uh, you have to run the strategy over a number of years 
to really capture those returns. So if you're, you know, just going in with two or three stocks, it's not going to work out well for you. Um, you know, just as an aside, that's exactly what I did when I started. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I learned my lesson <laughs> shortly after. By chance, they worked out. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been on this magical journey. But, um yeah, so that that would be the first thing that they have to learn. Um, and then obviously there's the mechanics of the quantitative stuff, how to calculate the formula, um, what, um, you know, how to buy stocks, and then they move on to the qualitative stuff. So what additional stuff could you look for? You know, what, what does it mean if net current asset value is shrinking versus growing? Um, you know, should you have a, a larger discount or you should be looking for your buybacks, that kind of thing? Um, and then in terms of the type of companies that I'm buying now, uh, that I wouldn't not necessarily have looked at, mm-hmm. um, basically this comes down to, uh, special situations that are going on in the company. So, mm-hmm. you know, a long time before I would just look at a company, it's cheap and, uh, seems to be fairly stable. So I'll buy it, put it in the portfolio. Uh, these days I'll look at, um, you know, whether there's an activist involved, for example, can, can you give me a specific, like a specific example right now that you're yeah, investing sure. in? Okay. So a company that's been, uh, hot on our forum lately has been support.com. Okay. And I've looked uh, at this, this by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. This is a company that um, that I probably talked about too much. Uh, I've never heard but, you talk about it, so no, I know it's it's all in the forum. But you know okay. what you what you speak about, you tend to drill back into your head, so you have to be cognizant of these biases. Sure. But um, but support.com is an interesting company because it wasn't that cheap statistically, but it was trading for uh, less than net cash, and you know. On a statistical basis, that's not necessarily associated with grayed out performance, but on a qualitative uh, basis, it can be very, very good. So this company um, was badly managed. And then uh, a few years ago, uh, a team of activists came about and fought a proxy battle and took control of the company. And so that immediately perked my interest and I ended up buying into it. At the time, the company was losing... I can't remember the exact number. We'll say fifteen million a year, something like that, on uh, on sales of you know seventy million or sixty million, something like that. And the activists managed to turn around the company. At the time, they were also uh, trading for roughly net cash. <clears throat> so this is the type of uh, special situation that I like to get involved at. Now, more recently, the stock traded down uh, a bit. We're kind of in a a funny period for the markets where a lot of this deep value stuff is not necessarily being recognized by the markets. So that that creates a lot of tremendous opportunities. And over this past fall in October, the the stock was trading down at about $1.50, but they had over $2 in net cash. And there was another activist involved. So you have activists running the company, and then you have activists for the activists, and the activists for the activists were pressuring management to get the stock price up. So I thought that was that looked promising. Something might happen. The company mm-hmm. was trading below net cash. So um, a number of people on our forum ended up buying the company. And within a couple of months, they announced a dollar a share um, distribution, so a special dividend. Uh, this is a this was an interesting 
event because a lot of people look at uh, they understand dividends. You got you know you got your uh, the day you declare your dividends. You have uh, your shareholders of record date, which is the the recording of the people who will get the dividend, mm-hmm. um, and then you have your ex dividend dates and all that. Um, so in a special dividend, there's a rule where if the dividend is large enough, uh, um, the ex dividend date is actually after the pay date. So you had basically all this time to buy the company up until the dividend was paid. And then if you bought the, the stock um, up until the, the day of the dividend, uh, and actually on the day of the dividend, you would have got the dividend. So typically in a normal dividend um, payout, it's something like two weeks before the dividend. Um, and if you buy after that or, you know, uh, right. <laughs> Anyway, so so there was a big window of time, and the stock was trading below two bucks. So I ended up um, significantly uh, increasing my position in the company, and uh, I knew that you know if I'm buying below two dollars, there's two dollars a share of cash. This company's paying out a dollar. Immediately, I get a fifty percent return uh, or rebate on my purchase, and they, there's probably a high possibility that they're going to pay out at least some other cash. Um, and then you have you know, still the operating business, which at this point is doing, you know, $65 million worth of sales and it has over $4 million in net profit. So that's worth more than, you know, two bucks a share. It could well, easily be. What was the enterprise value on the business? Uh, it was at the time uh, in something insanely negative, like a negative $2 or something. <laughs> okay. So, so you're. You know, in that situation, you're getting a 50% rebate on your purchase price, and then you might get the rest of your purchase price covered. So right. you get a free, right? Right. Yeah. So, so this is the type of stuff that we that I've um, really picked up on lately. Uh, it's really fun when you start recognizing this stuff and you can capitalize on it. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and then, has there been any? So I'm trying to think how to word this, but I'll just say it. Um, has there been any mistakes? But what I mean by that, right, because you could have just a net-net statistically and it doesn't work out. doesn't mean it was a mistake. So how yeah. do you just – so I guess number one is it have you made a mistake? That's my first question. Oh, I never make mistakes. <laughs> but, no. I, but, I, but I really mean that sincerely because yeah, a yeah. lot of what you are doing is quantitative, right? Yeah. So. If you're following the rules, you're not making a mistake, even if it doesn't always work out the way you want to. Yeah. But I know you are doing, you are looking at some qualitative factors. You are fine tuning a little bit. Have you ever fine tuned it in a way where you're like, oh, that was really dumb in hindsight? Whether it worked out or didn't. Maybe it worked out and you're like, oh, I'm lucky it worked out, or it didn't work out and it's on you why it didn't work out, not just some statistic. Does that make well, sense, my question? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I'll tell you about a situation I bought into recently where... Like if you bunt in baseball and you make it to first base, but you were stupid to bunt, it's still a mistake. That's what I mean. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, a lot of the mistakes in process come down to not having um, great information. So so there's... You you end up with a number of variables variables that can help you. And... Um, but you're not really sure about how to rank order them because yeah. the data is just not there for that. So, um, so you can be mis- making a mistake either way in terms of process. Um, can you gave me an example of that. Well, one of the, one of the things that 
frequently comes up in our forum is when to sell, right? And so there's two schools of thought. I was going to ask you about that later, so <laughs> we can go for it right now. Bring it on. Sure, that sounds good. Uh, so there's two, two schools of thought, right? Uh, um, because you're buying a neck or an asset value. Or say that, you just broke up a little bit. So you so might as well. Just start, so, say there's two schools of thought, and then you were saying? Yeah. So the first school of thought is sell at net current asset value because right. as a net, net investor, you're buying below net current asset value. So it makes sense to sell at net current asset value. And so that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is um, to hold on for, say, an entire year to be more consistent with the academic studies. Okay. Um, now, there is a definite poverty of data here. Uh, so we we can't really tell one way or another which one works out um, better quantitatively. Um, but you know that quantitatively, one of them will have higher returns. So you know by definition, if you're if you're choosing the wrong sell strategy, then you're kind of making a mistake there. I almost but, intuitively want to say the holding on is going to work better, right? Because you know you you hear about those net nets that end yeah. up becoming very profitable and they go up a thousand percent yeah and right there yeah. you've just made more return from that one stock than the entire portfolio combined where you might miss I, out on that if you sold when it hit net current asset value i mean that's my strategy okay and uh, i hope later we can talk about some of my epic failures in decision making but i almost i almost um, wonder and maybe there's data on this yeah so you have a net net portfolio and you just hold it for three years and then so yeah. let's say it even hits net yeah. current asset value, you give it another two years to see if it does anything. I yeah. wonder I wonder how that performs. Well, quantitatively speaking, um, the closer you get to twelve months, the better off you do. So you know, they've done um they've tested holding uh holding periods in a number of academic studies and the trend is strongly towards twelve months. Interesting. Um and but but it's interesting that um, holding for less than 12 months doesn't seem to work out as well. I'm not really 100% sure why that is. Um, you know, it does t- typically take about a year, a year and a half for these companies to work out on average when they work out. Um, but 12 months tends to be, uh, at least according to the academic studies, the holding period you want. Um, you know, getting back to your point about some, some of these net nets going up a thousand percent, I think this is my philosophy on it. So you've you've kind of hit on my philosophy on it. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listen listeners will have heard about the eighty twenty principle. Mm-hmm. So um, the principle briefly stated says that you know eighty percent of your results will stem from twenty percent of your effort, right? Yeah. And this is based on the Pareto distribution that was, um, I believe. Um, uh, an Italian economist came up some, somewhere in the 17 or 1800s. And, and you can see it all over the place. You can see it. It's a, it's, it's a natural law, uh, yeah. just like you know, a natural distribution is a natural law. Yeah. Um, it just so happens that some of the companies in your portfolio will do exceptionally well. Um, a couple of those will uh, do, you know, all right. A number of them, like maybe the bulk of them, will do, um, you know, kind of so-so, not really doing too well. And then you'll lose on a couple of them. And 
the idea is uh, that I have is that you know if you hold on to your stocks and let them run past net current asset value, you're going to be able to capture a lot of the upside for the extreme outliers. You know, the extreme positive events. Flyers thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where you're hitting on. Um, and so my preference is if I'm running a quantitative portfolio, I'm going to hold for 12 months, and I'm going to let those stocks run. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not going to go up and then come back down. You know, that obviously happens. But generally speaking, the more time or up until a year that you can let these stocks run, uh, the better outcome that I think you're going to have. Now, yeah. there's going to be a lot of people that argue against me and they say, well, <clears throat> Evan, that's not value investing. You know, you're basing this on you're basing your purchase on net current asset value. You're no longer a net net investor when you're holding past um, net current. I, asset. I actually see it. Do you have a rebuttal to that? Because I already have a rebuttal to, to that. Go ahead. So I, I don't necessarily... What I would, what I would but... say to that, right? So it, you're, you're dealing with a range of probabilities. So if mm-hmm. I can buy some asset that has a potential future return, but yeah. I'm buying it so cheap, I'm statistically betting that a small portion of those will, yeah. hit, the statist- will hit that, you know, the outlier probability. Yeah. And because I bought it so cheap... It enhances my returns even more, but if it doesn't happen, I'll still do okay, or I'll you know I'll do I'm not going to lose a ton. Yeah. And then by having a basket of those, you're capturing that small one two percent of businesses that are going to have a big future return because at the end of the day, what is intrinsic value? It's the future cash flows discounted back to the present. So you're betting that a few of these companies will have gigantic future cash flows. And by yeah. cutting them into the current asset value, you're actually guaranteeing that you're never going to see some of the future cash flows of some of those larger businesses yeah. that become yeah, larger. That, that's how I would see it. Go ahead. One of the problems that Buffett uh, mentioned when he was running his partnership is that he would buy some of these companies – he would sell them, you know, after they reach net current asset value, and they would just continue keep, you know, going up. And yeah. he's kicking himself because he lost out on this, you know, these returns. So some of the real magic um, of net net investing is finding the companies that are actually going to go up multiples of net current asset value, and it's not easy. It's it's something that um, very few people would be able to do, but. If you learn this master skill in net net investing, I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of Buffett, the yeah. you know, I go to every Berkshire. Hath- I've been every Berkshire Hathaway meeting since two thousand and six, and in two thousand and so, I think I asked him my first question in two thousand and seven, and it was about you know some of the stuff he was doing in his partnership days. He, him and Munger kind of deflected the question, so I came back the next year and I publicly called them out in front of everyone. Yeah. And I said you didn't answer my question last year, and I and I was more specific. Um, yeah. I said, you know, what do you? I said, do you think you'd be investing in, in more of the stuff you were doing in the partnership days? And Charlie Munger goes, well, I'm not investing small sums of money, so I don't have to think about it. And I was like, oh, yeah. come on, f off! Like, so yeah. the yeah. next year I came back, and I said, I want you to answer me specifically if you were dealing with small sums of money, even though I know you don't have to think about it. It was something like that, less polished. Yeah. Um, now I'm a teenager. I was like. You can actually hear me in the recording now that came out, and like I'll high pitch the squeaky, and my voice is trembling because I'm like I'm calling I'm calling out my heroes in front of thirty five thousand people. Holy shit! Uh, 
And then fun. F- so, so they did say if they were managing smaller amounts of money, they'd still be doing a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and then weird side fun fact, which I only discovered uh, a few months ago. The person that spoke after me, have you ever, um, do you know the author Tim Ferriss wrote the four hour work week? You ever yeah. heard of this book? Yeah. So yeah. that book hadn't come out at that time. I don't think so anyway. I um, heard him on, uh, on the recording actually. I'm like, yeah. I know that he, he, he was the question after mine. Oh really? And oh, I'm listening, I'm listening to my question and then I just continue yeah. to listen. It's like, hi, my name's Timmy Ferris. I'm a professor at Princeton. I'm like, well, Tim Ferriss, I think, went to Princeton. It could it kind of <laughs> sounds like Tim Ferriss. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So if you go back one before Tim Ferriss, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to sit down with Buffett and just you know discuss investing and what he used to do. Um, you know, back in the early days. Yeah. Apparently, uh, Eddie Lampert, before he ruined his name as a value investor with Sears. Um, he sat down with yeah. uh, with Buffett and got a really good idea of what Buffett was doing, and that helped him produce outstanding returns throughout, I guess, the '90s and up until he bought Sears. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now you're also you you were, we were saying before we started the show you you just wrote a, wrote a book is that? Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, so. It hasn't come out yet, okay. so we don't have a final title for it. So I can't, you know, name drop the title sure. for you. But um, it's a book that was picked up by Harriman House in the UK, and I've just completed writing it. It's about net nets and basically everything that I've learned up to you know last year, um, packaged into a hopefully polished uh book (laughs) so i know that the book is going to be polished i'm hoping my writing is going to be polished as well um but yeah that should come out sometime in the summer of 2020 i believe and um yeah uh maybe i'll come back and we can discuss yeah i was just gonna say if you you know if you want to come back once the book's (laughs) out we could discuss the book maybe we could you know you read a few passages from it and uh you know, it's a good way to just promote materials for, for people who would be interested in that. Well, you just good. cut off. You just cut off. I said uh, for people who might be interested in that, and then you cut okay. off. So what, what did you say? Okay, yeah. I said that sounds good. Cool. So right on. Very, very insightful. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, is there anything else? Um, you know, is there anything else you feel like I should be asking you that we haven't brought up? Anything you'd really like to share? Um, I think biggest hits and misses okay. would probably would probably yeah, be a good one. Let's hear it. Okay, so um, we'll start with biggest hits because everybody likes to brag, but yeah, uh, it's, it's fun to hear about too. It's fun to hear about. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, most of my big hits have been in the you know 100 to 150 plus return uh, per stock kind of range within a year. Um. And so, you know, typically that's pretty good. But uh, for a guy who says that, um, you know, you should hold for 12 months and let the stock run and see how it goes, um, I, I definitely miss some big winners. And so my biggest hits uh, from a selection point of view also turned into my biggest misses from a holding point of view. Okay. And uh, I'll give you an example here. There is a company in the UK called Crichton's PLC. Okay. And they're 
what the Brits call a toiletry maker. So they make, you know, shaving stuff and soaps and hair products, which I don't need. And, um, (laughs) you're a funny guy, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You and my wife think so. Okay. You got two Um, fans. All right. If you Uh, do stand up uh, comedy, you you at least know two people might show up. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Uh, so I spotted this company. I did a good job of spotting the company. You know, they were growing um, in earnings year over year, and they're growing in net current asset value year over year. And uh, they had an owner earner who was hard at work trying to write the company from you know its previous decline. Um, they were getting into. You said they had, they had a what earner? An owner earner. O- owner earner. So, or sorry, owner owner manager. Sorry. Okay, got it. Okay. Uh, so they had the CEO who owned uh, a bunch of stock. Got it. Okay. Um, and then they they were putting out you know a lot of new branding products and and seeing what would really hit. And so I saw this company and I I thought they were doing quite a good job. And the fact that they were growing you know over a three or four year period really sparked my interest. And so I bought the company at about I would say seven p six or seven p something like that. And it was below net current asset value at the same time. Below net, yeah, it was about a third or forty percent below net current asset value. Okay, so I bought it. We'll say six p, and it got to you know eight eight and a half p above net current asset value within a year. And I, I was patting myself on the back. Good job, Evan. You know you really knocked the ball out of the park this time. And sold my stock and moved on to something else. And then mm-hmm. over the course of the next four years, I watched the stock in horror go up to 40p. So, you know, I bought at six, sold at eight. The stock went up, I think, well, I think it went well past 40p, maybe up to 60p. So I missed a 10 bagger in, you know, four or five years right. because I sold just past net current asset value. So that's kind of informed my investing today. It's, it's painful. <laughs> I'll tell you my most painful one. I don't think I've ever shared this on the show. I'm actually going to uh, give me one second. I actually have a screenshot. Here we go. I have a screenshot of the the actual trade from my brokerage account because oh, no. looking at it is painful. So uh, on February 11th of yeah. 2005, yeah, um, I purchased 15 shares. Um, at a price of $81.39. Okay. Um, for a total of, and then with, with, so the commission, this is funny, the commission was nineteen ninety five plus another, plus an order handling of $3 a share. $3. So it was, it was 20, gotta pay the order <laughs> handling. <laughs> Isn't that what a broker's fee is? Order handling? I don't know, but who the fuck would pay twenty two ninety five per trade today, right? Yeah, I know. So, so the total commission was $22.95. For a total amount of like one thousand two hundred forty-three dollars and eighty cents for Apple stock. Oh, that was a dumb move. And then I sold it <laughs> a year later with a double, thinking I was yeah. really smart. Oh and yeah. And <laughs> split adjusted. I, I've done the math on it. It's actually disgusting how much that would be worth today. That one thousand eight hundred oh. and whatever. It, yeah, I mean, so so, one thousand. The what the twelve hundred dollars I think would be something like three hundred thousand dollars today. Something in ridiculous wow. yeah it, it, it yeah. was I, I don't know if it was that number but it was something so disgusting like over a yeah. hundred bagger yeah <laughs> i mean these are these are the type of lessons that you learn right? and they stick with you for a lifetime so yeah. this is this has informed a little bit of my um 
my investing today where we were talking about holding periods earlier and I said, you know, one year mechanical uh, holding period might be best. I didn't talk about the qualitative holding period. So okay. if you're selecting stocks based on, you know, qualitative measures and looking at the business and stuff, um, ideally what you'd be doing is you're selecting companies that will perform very, very well into the future that you know that, you know, they have uh, management who are making at least rational business decisions. It seems that things are going to point to uh, work out. In those cases, it's like an Apple situation. It's worth holding the company up until you see that whatever is causing the growth um, or, you know, the stock performance or whatever stops happening. And then and yeah. that's when you sell. Um, I almost wonder in today's market if you might even have some advantage because generally companies are not being picked up by computer algorithms. Sometimes news comes out and you actually have quite a bit of time to buy the stock. I mean, I, I'm not going to say any names because I still might buy some more and it's not that um, well traded. But there's one company, some significant yeah. changes ha happened in the business. Yeah. The stock didn't move. I bought more stock. Then the CEO, uh, actually the CFO, who I'd say was kind of a crook, was outed from the company because the SEC was investigating him for some other bullshit he did, you know, years back. Yeah. And because he was then discovered to be a crook, even though everyone already knows he's a crook, the stock was down 20% that day. And I'm like, wait, isn't that good news? So I bought yeah. more. <laughs> and then, of course, the stock went back up two days later. Yeah. Um, and it still hasn't moved that much, even though a bunch of changes have happened uh, with the yeah. management and there's a new person with the compensation committee who's going to, you know, yeah. I think would lower compensation. I don't know, but yeah. it, I think it's likely. So there's all this stuff going on yeah. and the stock is pretty much where it was before all this stuff got announced, but there's, it's, there's no trading algorithm around it. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're in a really interesting period for it's value. A, it's where, a weird, the weird situation, right? It is because you have, you have a lot of very obvious value opportunities where the, the value is definitely there and there's serious catalysts, but the stocks are, you know, not really reacting. And so if you're a stock picker and you're and you're focusing on stocks to buy and you're a value guy or a girl, then um, you can, you know, dive into the nano and microcap world and find some really exceptional situations. Statistically, so, val uh, female investors do better. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm no, I, I didn't tell my wife yet. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I want her still to look well, uh, look at me well. So, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, not not start her own competing site. Yeah, well, it'll be net net hunter. I don't know female, female edition. <laughs> female edition. Um, Support dot com actually they started a. Um, you know, you would think that support.com does support work and you would be right. But generally speaking, they're a call center business. They just launched a, um, a web service company where, you know, anybody who wants help with technology can uh, get a subscription or, you know, ask for a call and, and they'll have professionals walk walk you through your tech problem. Yeah. Um, they just launched this. And right now, you know, you can buy below or you could buy below. They're a bit above net cash right now but you set you essentially bought below net cash you got the legacy business for free plus you got this free warrant in the new business right and yeah. 
Um, there's a Harvard grad who's the chief marketing officer. They're growing um, web traffic by insane amounts from 10,000 views a, mo- uh, a month to 160,000 you know, today. So yeah, it's just a crazy period for value. But if you find you know, these growing companies or companies that have tremendous growth potential as net nets, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really where the real money is made, if yeah. you're good at it. Right, interesting. Um, huh. Yeah. And I, I think another interesting statistic is I think it's something like only 10% of market participants are actual quantitative investors. It's almost all uh, computer trading interesting. and algorithms. It's like either 10 or 20%. It's, we're, we're in the vast, uh, minority of trading. Most, most trading these days is algorithms. You froze oh, sorry, again. You broke up a little yeah. bit. I was saying most trading these days oh. by, by a lot is computer trading and algorithm algorithmic trading. Interesting. I'm noticing uh, quite a bit on the cheap stocks that I buy. Uh, there will be, um, you know, throughout a trading day, there will be a ton of tiny hundred share orders. Yeah. Uh, or people are just, you know, putting, you know, $25, $50 to work per trade and then, you know, scooping up a thousand dollars a day or whatever it works out to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's definitely the algos have started. So uh, I guess that's extra incentive to, uh, really focus in on the qualitative stuff because, you know, if the more that, um, the algos get smart and they spot these quantitative, um, bargains, the more probably they'll be buying them up. And so the, the difference between, um, really, really good returns and, uh, you know, just so-so returns will be your ability to pick uh, the best of the bunch based on qualitative factors. Yeah. Yeah, it can be frustrating when, when something keeps getting better and then the price doesn't move for two years. It's a little yeah. weird sometimes. Yeah. That's, and, it can, that's and it can question you. It can be, well, am I, am I not seeing something? Because when something doesn't move for two years straight, there have been times where we're like, am I not seeing something? Yeah, am I nuts? Am I even a good investor? This is really a period where um, you know it really sorts the true value investors from, I guess, the fly by night investors, yeah. where you know they they spot something that looks attractive, but they don't want to stick with it. So, I mean, I, I have seen companies, and where even where the return you've actually had a decent return. I yeah. mean, I, I, there there's one company actually we talked about in another episode, which I've I'm a shareholder and have been and out as a shareholder before. Uh, yeah. the company grows book value by double digits for, for, yeah. for quite a while. The great, great yeah. CEO. They buy back stock below book value every year, like a lot. They sell yeah. off parts of their book value above book value, yeah. and which then increases, you know, increases their, um, returns. And the CEO yeah. knows this yeah. and, um, the stock still trades below book value. It, it, yeah. It's weird. Like, it's not like it, I don't it, know something, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, a good argument for buying these cheap micro cap, nano cap stocks yeah. that are actually growing in value. So, you know, you could have, you know, your company, uh, company X, uh, growing yeah, I mean, this at, is not a net net, but it's certainly below liquidation yeah. value. I mean, if they liquidated today, you'd get a price well it, above, it, I don't know, well above, but maybe 30% above something like that, 20, 30%. Okay. 
So if the market is, you know, not pricing in the growth or, you know, not valuing the company correctly. The point, though, is it should be trading, especially in this interest rate environment, it should be trading above book value. Oh, it definitely should be. I mean, if you have returns on equity of 13, 14% a year, you shouldn't be trading at book value. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, It it is crazy. But uh, then again, if you're buying companies that are growing, you know, if this company is growing 20% a year, then it really doesn't matter when the market revalues the company because you know that, you know, the longer that it sits underappreciated by the market, it's going to be growing and that uh, final appraisal is going to be that much higher. Sure. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, Yeah. Now, if people want to actually sign up and register for your uh, offering, it's just netnethunter.com. Is that the website? Yeah, nanahunter.com, and then we have a tab on the top menu that says pricing, and that would be the best way to sign up. Um, but you know, you don't have to sign up to benefit from some of our knowledge. Okay, you can just sign up for our email newsletter, and so we send out a free email news newsletter. <clears throat> excuse me, once a month, and okay. uh, along with that, you get uh, investment advice and tips on a weekly basis. Cool. So you can add on the site as well. Awesome. Well, Evan, it was a pleasure having you on, and let me know when that book is out, and we'll, we'll get you back on again to talk about the book. Sounds good. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun. Yeah. All right, man. Have a good rest of your day. All right. You too. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.